After a long flight, we arrived at the Istanbul airport for a layover. We were tired and unable to find a seat in the airport. It was that crowded. Next to the Starbucks, even the ridiculously uncomfortable seats were filled. Our choice was to sit on the floor or stand. So we located a place on the floor across from the Starbucks, ever scouting for the next available seat. Nothing. Suddenly, like a ray from the heavens and the sound of awe from a hundred-member choir, two large panel doors opened and gave us a glimpse of our Shangri-La. Heaven was right through those doors. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 28th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. Okay, so it wasn't exactly heaven, but it was the luxurious lounge for the Turkish airline Elite Flyers Club. While I wasn't aware that this is a members-only club going in, I suddenly was made aware of this when I went to the door. The lady who denied my access was kind enough, but the two large bouncers behind her looked a bit more serious. I later would learn how all this works. If I spend enough money with Turkish Airlines, then perks begin to come my way. To start, I get the benefit of preferred seating options and added check-in or carry-on luggage, and maybe I'm given a free drink bonus or Wi-Fi without the added charge. But the lounge? Oh, I would have to pay big time for that. Here's the catch. In that moment, I yearned to have a comfortable seat in a regal setting. While I wasn't willing to pay for such a pleasure, I found myself somewhat jealous of those who had, and I wished that I was in their spot, well, at least for the moment. Now, imagine me in the lounge, enjoying the perks of the available food, seating, and the amenities. The lounge opens up, the choir sings, and there they are, the former me seated on the floor in an overly crowded room. Poor schlep having to eke out a miserable experience while at the airport. Oh well. Life of the privileged is, well, pretty enjoyable. So enjoyable that we fight at all costs to preserve it. So, what's the challenge? When things fall apart and our worlds come tumbling down, it often reveals that maybe we've invested our efforts into the wrong things. As we get into our text here in Acts chapter 13, we might just see how this situation plays out. With that, let's get started. I hope I'm not late, an elderly woman offers when the servant opens the door to his master's well-appointed home. I will need to see if my lord will have you, the servant replies. Fretting, the woman responds, Oh dear, I hope he can still see me today. I'm at an utter loss of what to do. Please wait here. I'll be back shortly, the servant responds in a stern tone. As she stands in the entryway of Elimus' home, the woman takes in the frescoed tiles on the floor and the plastered wall. Impressed by what she observes, this man has done well for himself, she thinks. Returning to the foyer, the servant sees the woman captivated by the niceties of the entryway. Clearing his throat to gain her attention, the servant calls out, The master of the home will see you now. Please follow me. The servant leads the woman across the courtyard and into a larger room. Walking through the room, the woman senses a very different feel in this room than the airiness found in the entryway and courtyard. The cooler room is dark and cluttered. Walking by a bookcase of sorts, the woman takes notice of several bowls of varying shapes and sizes. At closer glance, she sees burn marks in each of the bowls. As they arrive towards another doorway in the back of the room, 
She sees small human-like figures strewn across the top of a workbench, tiny effigies of people that remain in contorted positions. Her eyes widen and her heart begins to race when she sees a small figure that is missing certain limbs. Opening the door to the back room, incense smoke pours out from the smaller room and into the larger area. The servant then says, Please come and have a seat. He shows her to the seat, walks back to the door, and closes it behind him. The woman sits in an even darker, smoke-filled room, contrasted with only a few shafts of light creeping through the curtain-drawn windows. Unable to make out the furnishings of the room, she can only see a mat at her feet and the faint glow of incense embers that still burn in several bowls. She sits and clings to the amulet fastened to her necklace, a previous gift from the man she sees today. Grateful for the amulet, she recalls the relief she felt when he used it to call back her husband from the dead. She smiles at the memory of seeing her husband's visage become manifest in this very room. She and her husband shared a good life together, though they went through their share of rough times too. The death of their two children were included with such rough times, terribly life-altering for both of them. But with his death, she has been at a total loss with what to do. Lost in a flood of memories, she is suddenly jarred awake when the door opens. The man she so appreciates walks in and greets her. Thank you for seeing me today. I wasn't sure if you would be available, seeing how I'm somewhat late in arriving, she confesses. With a gentle smile, the man responds, The Lord's timing is always perfect. You are neither early or late. She smiles at this and relaxes in her seat. What brings you here today, the man asks with warm sincerity. Holding her amulet for the man to see, she says, This gift you have given me from my last visit has indeed been a treasure. I think of my husband every time I hold on to it. I think of our life together for while it lasted. She pauses, but it no longer seems to work. What do you mean, the man curiously asks. Well, I get myself in a dark and quiet room, much like this one, and I try to refresh my memory in an effort to bring him back. Growing excited, she exclaims, I swear, after seeing him here in this room with your help, I was able to see him more than once when I got back home. With excitement shifting to disappointment, she continues, but his presence has become less and less seen over time. I can't feel the warmth of his touch or his voice any longer. Growing indignant, she demands, I want him back. You need to bring him back for me. Please, Elimus, sir, give me another amulet or incantation bowl so I can bring back the life of my husband. Surprised by this outburst, Elimus allows her rage to subside and calmly counsels, My dear woman, you do not know what you are asking for. Does a responsible parent allow a child to play with fire? Amulets and spell bowls will not bring your husband back. The fading of his memory is a good thing, my friend. Please, let the fires die so that you may make something new from the ashes. He smiles at her. I can't let the fires die, she cries out. I have nothing else to live for. Cupping his hands around her face, he gently responds, The Lord of heaven has allowed you to outlive your husband and your children for a reason, one that none of us may fully know, that is until you begin to start anew. Shortly before the sun sets over the great sea west of the island, Barnabas points out at a peninsula with an appendaging strip of land, Guys, we've made it. Hopefully we can make it in time before it gets too dark. Paul looks at Barnabas with a smile and asks, Any idea where we might stay tonight? Well, nothing exactly comes to mind just yet, Barnabas says, but isn't it just like the Lord to provide for us? 
Nearing the outskirts of town, John Mark asks, Is it true that they have stone-carved architecture like they do in Petra? Fondly remembering, Barnabas says, The tombs of the kings. Yes, I remember seeing them a long time ago. Pointing northward, If memory serves, they are only a few miles away. But when you're a kid, going anywhere seems like forever. Barnabas looks back at John Mark and says, I don't know if they're anything like Petra. I've never seen the work in Petra. Paul, when you were staying with the Nabataeans, did you ever make it there? Barnabas asks. Still looking at the sun setting into the sea, Paul responds, Where? Petra? He shakes his head. No, I didn't make it that far. Besides, do you think King Eridus would have wanted to see the likes of me? Barnabas laughs. No, no, I suppose not. Arriving at the Agora by nightfall, the three identify a number of vendors cleaning their respective areas in the larger marketplace. Fatigued by the long day, many rush to leave their spaces secured so as to get home. Splitting up to converse with the hurried vendors, the three find little opportunity to connect with anyone for the evening. Reconvening, John Mark and Paul see Barnabas talking to a vendor who also looks hesitant to help out the three. Walking back towards Paul and John Mark, Barnabas shrugs and says, Well, let's see if we might find a place for food. The other two agree and seek out a place to eat. John Mark wakes up from his restful sleep and looks around to see that Paul is missing. The lull of the crashing waves have offered all three a comfortable night on a sandy beach in the open air. Looking around to spot Paul, John Mark finally spots a mound of clothes heaped into a pile some hundred feet away and the head of a man bobbing up and down in the sea. Anxious to bathe himself, John Mark runs towards the water, leaving his clothes in a trail along the way. Diving into the waves, John Mark swims towards Paul, but thinks better of it when he faintly hears Paul praying out loud. Stopping at the depth just above his waist, John Mark watches Paul and marvels at the nature of his relationship with the Lord. While unable to make out what Paul says, John Mark hears laughter and excitement in Paul's expression. This strikes him as odd, especially in contrast to what he has seen all of his life. Someone is joyful in God's presence? Shaking the sand out of his garments, John Mark then dresses and walks back to where Barnabas was sleeping, only to see him talking with a group of fishermen who are in from the night's dredge. One of the fishermen points Barnabas towards the city and seems to be given some instruction. Barnabas thanks the man and begins walking back towards John Mark. Seeing how John Mark and Paul have washed off, Barnabas jokes, It's about time you cleaned up, you two. You were both, well, let's put it this way, you weren't the right kind of fragrant. Oh, and you're a breath of fresh air, Paul teases back. It's the sea I'm worried about. Once you step into it, how many fish will die? Joining in, John Mark says while pointing at the fishermen, You see, Paul, that's why the fishermen didn't catch much yesterday. You stepped in the water and the dead fish floated away. High-fiving John Mark's hand, Barnabas laughs. So, I learned a few things from our fishermen friends over there. There are a few synagogues in town as well as a smaller church. One of the guys actually belongs to the church and welcomed us to join him for a meal today. Nice, Paul responds. God's timing's good. With the Sabbath coming tomorrow, it will be nice getting to know a few people before going to synagogue. Well, I don't think our hosts will be too inclined to going to synagogue or celebrating the Sabbath with us, Barnabas says. Oh, Paul asks. No, they're not Jewish, Barnabas replies. Oh, okay, Paul responds. Fine by me, but good to know all the same. John Mark asks. So what will we do before meeting the family for a meal? Barnabas turns towards the water and says, Well, first I need to kill a bunch of fish. But once I smell like a rose again, I think we should seek what God has us for today. Agreed, Paul says, on all accounts.
Seated at his desk, Sergius Paulus pours over the recent legislative changes that have arrived from Emperor Claudius. Hearing a knock on his door, he calls out, Come in. Sir, a servant enters, Master Elimus is here upon your request. Yes, please send him in. Sergius Paulus responds as he resumes Claudius's administrative update. With nobody in the room, Sergius Paulus removes the seals from a number of scrolls and verbally processes. All right, what's going on here? Britain and Germanic fronts. Let's see. More defensive posturing. Closer tower proximities on wall. More organized square formations for military camps. Okay, I get that. Breaking the seal of yet another scroll, he slows his pace and rereads the notice. Yes, it's about time. Roman military horsemen have had little incentive to train others or to make lateral moves. Standing the pace of the room, Sergius Paulus ponders the implications for his own horsemen and how there has been little improvement from the ranks. If you had nowhere to go, no increase in pay, and no career path, he says aloud, then what would possibly motivate you to make any changes? He looks back at the piece of paper and says, now this makes sense. They will... Interrupting his course of thought, Elimus steps into the room and calls out, My lord, how good it is to see you. Shifting his eyes away from the scroll and at Elimus, Sergius Paulus responds, Yes, likewise. It's good seeing you as well, my friend. You sent for me, my lord, Elimus says. It sounds like you have something on your mind. I do, the proconsul responds. I'm just finishing with, and he holds up several of the unwrapped scrolls. Well, these. Hey, please join me with my rounds around the city. Walking from the proconsul's office, the two slowly stroll by a number of wealthy homes toward the city center. Admiring extravagant home after extravagant home, Elimus offers, My lord, you've done really well here. Sergius Paulus says nothing. Elimus continues, Seriously, my lord, you have gained the trust of those in the city, and many are thriving because of your work here. He then jokes, You must be getting some really good counsel. The proconsul laughs at this. Before you came, Paphos was nothing but a stepping stone in the eyes of our previous governors, Elimus says. We were exploited for our location, and while much trade has made us wealthy, we were considered a little less than the bottom of a shoe. Yes, Paphos isn't exactly the place where an up-and-coming consul wishes to land, Sergius Paulus responds. To be assigned here is a good clue that you're winding down, not up. So what's on your mind, my lord, Elimus asks. Walking across a paved road, the two make their way past the house of Dionysus and towards the Agora. Looking around at the city's progress, Sergius Paulus remarks, The Cuclia cult has been around for some time now. Surprised to hear him address the Cuclia by name, Elimus's eyes slightly widen. My lord? Sergius Paulus knowingly glances at Elimus. Eyes narrowing, he asks, You seem to be in the know about these sorts of things. Tell me. I've noticed the Cuclia has shifted its attention away from strictly religious interests and is now aggressively navigating the political waters. Oh, Elimus replies without a look of concern. Sir, the Cuclia have been around since the beginning of time and has always had an interest in political, well, how should I say it, well-being? What have you noticed that's different? Carefully studying the man at his side, Sergius Paulus continues walking before asking, are you still involved with the Cuclia? My lord, Elimus responds with a surprised look. I'm not sure what is bringing you this concern. I'm interested in learning what you have to say about it and why you may think uh, I am somehow involved. Arriving at the Agora, the two happen upon merchants of goods and food vendors. 
Pointing out a vendor of interest, Sergius Paulus offers, This guy does a great job with lamb and grilled vegetables. Please, allow me to get us lunch. Crossing the road and entering into the Agora, John, Mark, Paul, and Barnabas discover a lively group of vendors and townspeople buying and selling goods throughout the marketplace. Now this is more like it, John Mark exclaims as they walk along the vendor stalls. Barnabas laughs. Yes, they do seem to be a little bit more lively today, don't they? Looking over at Paul, he then asks, What do you have in mind here? I don't know, Paul responds. I just know that we need to be here today. Barnabas nods with an understanding look. Okay then, well, we'll follow your lead. Are either of you hungry? Both stare back at Barnabas in disbelief. John Mark says, We just ate, and I had way too much food. Paul looks at Barnabas as well. Yes, I've eaten way more than I've needed. Barnabas agrees. That was quite a meal. I am repeatedly blown away at the kindness of so many of the Gentile believers that we encounter, welcoming us into their homes, feeding us beyond reason, and gushing with such generosity. My good sirs, a vendor comes from behind and interrupts their conversation, pulling out a well-appointed headband to show he offers. You look like you're far away from home. Do you come to us from Judea, maybe? The three look down at their garments and back at the vendor. That obvious, huh? Barnabas asks. I would imagine that in your travels, you must be suffering from extensive sun exposure. You could use a headband of this quality to help you protect your sensitive heads. He places it on John Mark's head and delights. This was made to fit your head. Turning John Mark to face the others, he says, Look at your brother here. He is now prepared to bear the long walks in the hot sun. The vendor looks around to see if anyone is watching and says to the three, These normally go for five denarius. He lets it sink in. But for you, my fellow Jews, I will gladly sell you this for three. Because I like you. Wait, Paul says, you're Jewish? Well, yes, he says proudly in Aramaic. From the house of Zebulun, my family was relocated here some time ago during the Ptolemaic era. They helped build the first synagogue here in Neopathos. With a new level of interest, Paul continues, Where is the synagogue? Pointing northeast of the Agora, the vendor says, It's only a block away. Come and worship with us tomorrow. You will be our guest. Where did you say you came from? Barnabas chimes in. Well, you guessed it right the first time. We've come from Jerusalem and more recently Antioch. I knew it, the vendor says with enthusiasm. We didn't get your name, Barnabas says. Oh, how rude of me, my new friends. My name is Jared, he says. Paul shares, well, I'm afraid that we can't afford the beautiful headpiece. We will be delighted to share Sabbath together with you tomorrow at synagogue. Jared sizes the three, looks at their dirty garments and says... So, what brings three common Jews all the way from Jerusalem to the city of Paphos, across the Great Sea, some 500 miles away from home? Barnabas laughs. Now that is the best question we've heard so far. He looks around at Paul and John Mark, then says, Jared, we've seen the hand of God move in our own lives so significantly that we have come to share our story with others who might be willing to hear. John Mark adds, You wouldn't believe what we've witnessed over the past ten years. We're still amazed at the power of God who is quite alive and well. That sounds promising, Jared responds, though quite curious as to why you would go to such great lengths to travel this far to simply share what God has done in your lives. When you hear the specifics, John Mark says, then you'll better understand. Looking over John Mark's shoulder, Jared recognized Sergius Paulus and Elimus at once. He then turns John Mark to face the governor and says, My lord, it is good seeing you today. The others turn around to meet the proconsul and his trusted advisor. Jared, Sergius Paulus smiles. It's good to see you, my friend. How's the family? 
Standing at attention, Jared replies, Lord, my family is well and healthy. He then looks at his new friends and shares, I've just met these fellow Jews who have come from Jerusalem. They were just sharing a little bit about their travels and how the hand of God has been with them over the recent ten years. Really, Sergius Paulus responds, You've come here from Jerusalem? What brings you to our corner of the world? Jared looks at Elimus, who appears stone cold in his affect, and then back at the proconsul. My lord, they will be sharing Sabbath with my family. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark share a surprised look with one another as Jared continues. And they will be sharing their God encounters with us tomorrow at synagogue. My lord, please join us tomorrow for our synagogue service, Jared offers. We would be most honored to have you. Looking over at Elimus, who gives no clue of interest, Jared offers, Master Elimus, we know you have a Jewish background as well. Won't you please join us and be our guests? Sensing Elimus's discomfort, Sergius Paulus enthusiastically responds, Yes, he and I will both be there. Looking over at Paul, who has remained quiet, Sergius Paulus senses something dynamic happening. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. We're going to stop here for today, and as curious tensions begin to mount between Sergius Paulus and Elimus, things become more complicated with the arrival of the three sojourners from Jerusalem. We'll see how this plays out next week, but in the meantime, consider this. As a trusted advisor of the most important man in Cyprus, Elimus begins to feel threatened by Sergius Paulus's line of questioning. In Elimus's mind, things have been going quite well under Sergius's leadership, so why raise a new set of issues? What's more vexing in Elimus's mind is the fact that Sergius Paulus doesn't wish to reveal what he knows and seems to be distancing himself from Elimus. This is disturbing. So when the first encounter with the three from Jerusalem takes place, and Sergius Paulus, a Gentile, enthusiastically wishes to attend synagogue, Elimus becomes quite uncomfortable especially when Sergius Paulus forces Elimus's hand to attend with him. Elimus is a careful operator, and he prides himself as one who strategically has worked his way to gain the trust of the most powerful man on the island. The thought of his position being placed in jeopardy, especially after all of his hard work, is unnerving. Consider a teaching moment when Jesus is invited to dine at an important Pharisee's home. Here he notices other Pharisees vying for position, hoping to dine next to the important Pharisee. Those closest to the most important person in the room would often position themselves to be physically closer than the others, which clearly communicated to those playing the game who the second most important person in the room is. So when the jockeying for position game plays out in front of them, Jesus decides to point this out to the players. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and for those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke fourteen seven through 11 Jockeying for a position has been a long-term goal for Elimus. So after arriving at a place of being well-regarded and valued, Elimus now feels threatened at the idea. 
Think about it. Elimus's purpose for life, his identity is being threatened, and his world is in danger of crashing down. When threatened, it shouldn't surprise us to see him act out negatively. Self-preservation often shows up with some nasty behaviors. So what happens when your world faces such danger? Moreover, what do you do with the words of Jesus that encourage us not to get wrapped up in position or self-advancement? Quite honestly, these are really hard words for me. Position and self-advancement have always been a temptation and an underlying motive for my own ways of functioning. Consequently, it shouldn't be surprising to hear how Jesus' words have cut me to the core. It's as if I hear this, Andy, you're fretting because you've set your purpose on things that do not matter. Instead, focus on caring for others and not worrying about how you'll be rewarded with status or finances. Instead, do a labor of love for me and trust that I will satisfy your most basic needs. Perhaps the most liberating part of these words is this, Andy, if you place your efforts for kingdom advancement versus self-advancement, then you won't have to worry about the crashing and burning. Because with advancing the kingdom, it's no longer about you. How do Jesus' words cut you? What self-advancement are you aiming to bolster? Is it getting in the way of your calling to function as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven? Well, something to think about. But tune in next time to see how all of this unfolds. In the meantime, may you trust that God will satisfy your most fundamental of needs as you pursue Him this week.